The literary world is full of phenomena to be explored, from the evolution of genres to the concept of prestige. Studying the humanities at a broad scale layers social and historical insights on top of the experience of reading individual works. The digital humanities, as a field, seeks to bridge computing and humanistic disciplines. The recent advances we've seen in large-scale data processing and, of course, modern language modeling, allow us to confront both individual texts and digital libraries in a way we couldn't before. Ted Underwood has brought these developments to bear on our understanding of the literary imagination. Trained in literary history, he eventually turned his research focus to applying machine learning to large digital collections. I think Ted's unique blend of perspectives offers a wealth of insights and equanimity that we can all learn from. This is the Gradient Podcast. I am your host, Daniel Bashir. If you aren't already subscribed to The Gradient, go ahead and follow us wherever you're listening to this podcast. You can also follow us on Substack, where you'll get notifications whenever we release a new podcast episode, article, or newsletter. But now, without further ado, Ted Underwood. Ted, I think that your background and what you are doing now is a really interesting combination of things for somebody to be doing in AI. You write that you essentially use machine learning to study the literary imagination. And you came from a background with an English PhD. So I'd love to hear a little bit about that background, what you were studying early on, and how that morphed into what you're doing now. Yeah, I think my my path to toward using machine learning um, was similar in some ways to that of a, a number of other people in the humanities in this area you could call digital humanities or cultural analytics, um, at least in the sort of the older generation of people who did this. The generations that are coming along right now are going to have a different story. But um, a lot of people um, who are now sort of you know full professors, how they got into this was that they had some coding experience back in the 20th century. And that made it easy for them to try certain kinds of experiments. And um, really, there was a whole subfield called humanities computing that was basically this. It was people who had some experience with, with computers um, and the humanities. But there were real limitations in that. Like that was the, that was the bridge toward what we're doing now. But um, basically, I think there was an overvaluation of coding as such in, involved in that. And a lot of what people were doing um, quantitatively was was kind of naive when you when you got past the fact that they were using computers to do it. It was basically, I mean, counting words. There, there's a there's something sophisticated about that. Just to the recognition that actually words contain a lot of information, and that just counting them as features, you, you actually can learn a lot. That's I don't want to trivialize that. That's an important recognition. But um, what I had to learn anyway. The next step for me was to realize that you also need to think about statistics. You need to think about uncertainty. You need to think about how you're characterizing the uncertainty. 
and um, uh, also questions about the interpretive meaning of whatever numbers you're extracting from historical documents or literary texts. So that was the path that led a lot of people into this. But then there was another sort of set of realizations. And I could I could trace the specific biographical connections for me, but I think they're they're sort of less important than the the thing that I have in common with lots of people, which is that path. That seems to be, as you said, pretty common. I'd love to turn that a little bit towards your specific work. And if we can kind of explicate what exactly that begins to look like. And so it seems like one of the really important things here, as you said, is not just fiddling around with the rudimentary and steadily less rudimentary statistical tools that we have at our disposal, but leveraging other backgrounds, leveraging the interpretive components of things to understand what numbers mean, what uncertainty means in a particular context. Right. And and just to put it in a way that is going to seem really, really simple for most of your audience, but but is not if you're coming from a humanities background, you need a model. You need you need to have a model of the relationship between multiple variables. You you can't go in and just um, measure stuff and count stuff and think that that's going to lead you to um, what you you will come out with data for sure, but you won't necessarily know what it means. But if you have a model, you're looking at the relationship between variables that you have some chance that that will be meaningful, especially if, and this is the main sort of recognition that I, I think I had to make, especially if part of your model is um, some variable that actually tracks how human beings have responded to the texts, documents, artifacts you're studying. In other words, it, it really isn't enough to just to go in and think, oh, we're going to, we're going to look at linguistic patterns and we're going to see um, in a in a completely unsupervised way, what those patterns tell us, because um, it, there's multiple ways you can interpret patterns in in human culture, and to to have a a sense of what those patterns meant for the human beings who created them or responded to them, you need some evidence about you know actual human response. You can't just look look at words um, on the page, so. Um, for me, what that ended up meaning was um, was I moved forward by getting information about human categorization of texts, either in terms of how we place them in genres at different, maybe at different times in history, or um, you know what got read, what what had prestige in a particular period, and I used those variables, you know, that indicate how texts had meaning for real people at a specific historical moment. Um, as things to be predicted and use machine learning then to develop a model that could predict human response. And then we had some, some sense of what it would, what, what the meaning was of our model. So anchoring it in the human was key. The other thing though, that, um, you know, I, a recognition that I, again, I think this will be pretty basic for your audience, but it wasn't for people coming to this from the humanities was just a recognition that um, we could construct models of things like literary prestige or genre in a way that had, hadn't been possible in the 20th century because machine learning was, was able to grapple with high dimensional representations of language without overfitting. That, that basic, I, I, 
I think that's worth stressing just because I think a lot of people in the humanities have the sense that like what happened is, is data got bigger or something or computers got faster. And it's just like, it's just about scale. It's just about um, big data, but it's the, it's the dimensionality of the data that really was the key that made this possible. And also, and also I think, you know, thinking about overfitting things like that, that made it possible to have meaningful um, conversations about cultural material. You do approach questions here that I think are very interesting for anybody interested in literature pretty broadly, as you've spoken to already, the evolution of genres, what prestige meant over time. And perhaps we can start to approach the actual research directions a little bit in this way. I think this is what you call distant reading, but a lot of what you articulate speaks to as you've said already, what you can do when you start to zoom out a little bit, when you look at statistics over large corpuses of text, as opposed to the perhaps gestalt I get as an individual reader faced with an individual book. Could you elaborate on that a little bit? Sure. And this, you know, some of this may be about to change because the, our tools are changing pretty rapidly right now, as you know. But so distant reading is a controversial phrase, partly because Franco Moretti, who coined it, um, presented it as, in some ways, a, a part of a polemic about, you know, is this the right way to read? Is close reading the wrong way to read? And that's, I don't really actually have a position on that. I don't think there's a right way to read. I think there are lots of ways to read. But what I do think is that backing out, zooming, zooming out and looking at lots of books, but also long spans of time, turned out to be the place where computational methods and machine learning could give us a real edge at least, you know, so far, five or 10 years ago, um, that was where we could learn things that we didn't yet know by using these methods. Not that the methods were unable to grapple with two or three texts or, or a single author, not that it's not worth thinking about that. Single authors, single books are still really important. But the, the thing that, the way I would prefer to, to put it is just human readers are really good at that. We are you know, we designed this game and we are good at understanding a single book. GPT-4 is getting there, but, um, you know, a statistical machine learning model with, with word frequencies as features could not really add very much to our understanding of a single author. People thought it would. They constructed all kinds of like, we're going to get at the essence of the style of Jonathan Swift. You know, that was the idea because that was what people were used to looking for. But the, the quantitative methods didn't actually give us that much leverage there, but they did when we backed up just because human memory is not that, um, you know, if you're trying to, to make comparative um, analyses of a thousand books, uh, we, you might remember the plots of the books, but you can't compare them all. So, yeah, we when we did that, when we backed up and it wouldn't even necessarily have to be a thousand, it could be several hundred because really human me memory is pretty limited you before you get to that point but when we asked questions like um can we predict which books are going to be reviewed in prestigious um magazines yes we can but then more interestingly say we take a model train it on this 25 year period how good is that model at predicting the next 25 years of of literary prestige um what was surprising there is the, the model is pretty stable actually it doesn't change dramatically 
And that's, that goes against a lot of the stories we were telling because we, we like to tell dramatic stories where like modernism comes along and literary values are overturned. Everything is upside down, but actually, no, actually the, the things that were the kinds of features that predict literary prestige in the late 19th century continue doing so in the early 20th century for the most part. And also when you can see a drift, um, the drift continues in the same direction for like a century or so. It's like, say, there was a, a tendency to get more and more concrete in, in diction. That was prestigious. Things continued to move in the direction of prestige basically across the century. So these stories of dramatic literary revolutions, um, I wouldn't say they're completely exploded, but we need to look at them a lot more skeptically. Yeah, I do want to come to some specific questions about your work on literary prestige and some of your others. But perhaps first to complete our our bridge there, you had a very interesting blog post called How Predictable is Fiction, where you looked at the sort of predictability, as the, the blog post kind of says, about fiction versus nonfiction. And I think that gets us closer to your particular focus on literature one very interesting part of this was how you looked at the different scales of predictability. So sentence to sentence, page to page, across the span of an entire book. Could you tell me a little bit about the ideas you were exploring there and the import of that, perhaps for your research methods more broadly? I mean, to be honest, I think there's a loose end here that I probably need to follow up with um better methods as we as we get them um, in the next few years. Um, but what I'm particularly interested in that post is sort of comparing the degree of autocorrelation as we if we think about a text as a as a time series, um, how is that different, say, in biography or in in fiction? Um, and uh, can we start to figure out sort of like what's going on with with a suspenseful plot, um, something that fiction specifically needs to have. Biography may or may not need to have. Um, can we think about, you know, structure of, of a narrative? And I'm, I'm doing that there with, again, pretty crude methods. I'm just representing a section of a book as a, a vector and using, I think, um, word embeddings. Um, but uh, we can probably do better than that as we get language models to read these books and think about, pose really more specific questions about the structure of plot. I think we should be able to ask language models, um, what is the reader probably wondering at this point in the narrative? What do they not know? What are they wondering? And that's really a more going to be a more sophisticated way to think about suspense than just as a time series, because... I don't think that really, I don't think it's going to give it, get us enough leverage. But I was trying in that post. The question of, of what the reader is wondering or not wondering is pretty interesting to me because it seems like different, different works you're going to look at come at this in, in very different ways. The, the scope of wondering what, how the plot of a novel is going to unfold of course, that's going to vary across genres, but then also across scope. Like you look at the brothers Karamazov and one of the first things you're presented with is the father's going to die. Well, that's that's not something I'm wondering. But in kind of the, the more minute portions of the text, you do find yourself 
tasked with, oh, what what's going to happen to Dimitri here? Like, what in the world is going on with some of the individual characters and, and their interactions? And so that does seem like a really deeply interesting question to, to contend with. So, for instance, one of the tricks we might we might be able to trace the evolution of a particular trick that writers have developed, which is to keep, you know, as they would say in TV writing these days, to have an A plot, a B plot and a C plot so that you never you never just have the reader um, thinking about what's going to happen next in the plot that I'm seeing before me. But somewhere in the back of their head, they're also anxious about the B plot. The B plot isn't on the stage right now. It's like, you know. Uh, someplace else and, you know, some other set of characters. But that what we think of sometimes as braided suspense, different suspense lines that kind of get woven together into a, I think we could with something like, um, well, something like GPT-4, frankly, passing at a few thousand words of a narrative at a time, we probably could detect when a, a story has braided suspense or a more simple plot line. That's really interesting. Let's let's zoom out a little bit before we kind of dive back in here and talk about your 2015 work, The Literary Uses of High Dimensional Space. I think this is a really useful way to introduce some of the rest of your research and kind of a good opportunity to discuss how the idea or, or verbiage of big data and statistical methods first came to impact the humanities. Could you perhaps trace a little bit of that history as you did in this paper and speak to what people were doing, what they were studying? I think what I try to do in that piece is um, acknowledge the truth of what a lot of my colleagues in humanities feel about quantitative methods, which is they, they haven't tended to work for us. It's not, you know, people are not resistant to applying machine learning to um, literature just because they're, you know, they've got their, their feet in the mud or something, you know, there's a, there's a valid reason. Um, Statistical methods really couldn't do that much for the humanities in the 20th century. Um, But I try to get people to understand because there's a hasty generalization from that to say like, well, and they never will because this this is just not quantitative. It's, it's ineffable. It's indescribable. Um, no, it's the particular limits of statistical methods in the 20th century, which were, were great at dealing with structured data, you know, basically single digit or double digit numbers of variables. They were, but they couldn't really grapple with, um, unstructured text. Um, so, you know, that's why I stress like high dimensional space makes more possible. It, it allows us to deal with problems that really, we were right that they don't reduce to, you know, five or six variables as like maybe problems in economics did. But we were wrong to assume that they could never be quantified. And um, I'm also partly trying to work there with the sort of intuitive assumption that a lot of people, not just in the humanities, but people on the street have when they encountered sort of statistical machine learning methods of a, a decade ago, the reaction was, you're just counting words. And really, what can that ever tell? Isn't that really super crude? And yes, it is crude, but it turns out also to work, you know? And um, because words are really, they're actually high-level features. They're not, we're not talking about pixels. Words are really high-level features. And um, so, you know, counting words actually ends up being a, a decent approach. We're, we're doing better now, but I think it was critical five or 10 years ago to get people to understand 
um, you know, the stuff that we think is key about syntax and like, it's not as key as we think, you know, you can do a lot with word counting. So I tried to, I tried to communicate that. Now, you know, things are, like I say, things are changing now. And um, because we're not just able to, you know, acknowledge syntax, we're, we're getting to the point where we're able to model something that's on a larger scale, even than that. But that bridge needed to be built. Absolutely. And I guess this kind of brings forth a pretty important revolution. Maybe revolution is too strong a word, but certainly shift in how people in the humanities are capable of understanding the broad contours of what's been going on in the texts that they're interested in studying over time. I kind of wish we could go slower because I feel like we could all, not just in the humanities, but kind of all of us could use another decade to absorb statistical machine learning. And and just like, you know, we get to a point where all um, college undergrads are thinking about like bias, various bias, variance trade-off and um, the, the perils of overfitting and, and how you avoid it. Like those, those are really, um, good tools for thinking with in a general way. It's not, those aren't just technical tools. They're things I would like to see everyone almost become part of the intuitive way we approach stuff. But unfortunately, I, I'm afraid we're kind of, we're in such an accelerated mode that I don't think people are going to have time to absorb that before they're on to large language models. And sadly, that means that they're, that a lot of people probably will never really understand what's going on under the hood. Um, but yeah, anyway, that's a bigger problem. That's a really important one, though. I definitely feel lucky that in my own education, I think we foregrounded a lot, some of those more basic issues. I think to what you said, we could all definitely use a little bit more time to ingest and understand what in the world is going on right now. I mean, people are still doing empirical theory work on why deep neural networks seem to generalize so well, despite overfitting. So we are definitely still solving problems and doing experiments with relatively small neural networks to understand how they work. While at the same time, these massive scale LLMs are just dominating the conversation. Right. And I think there's probably room like to bring up a piece that I'm, I wasn't first author on, but um, was participating in with David Bamman was first author on a piece about character types in, in, I think his his first piece was on character types in film. He was working with plot summaries, and then we tried to generalize it out to to fiction. And he had a um, probabilistic graphical model with a sort of Bayesian underpinning that was inferring character types. That I think is still like that will give us if we're able to do something like that, it will give us a deeper understanding of what we're doing than just throwing a bunch of text at GPT four and asking it to sort you know sort out. I don't know exactly on what basis the character types it, it there, I think there's still a lot of value in building models that are explicit and that we can manipulate and understand. Yes. I think this definitely speaks to the interpretability question. And I know you have something very interesting to say about GPT-4 and interpretability, which I want to come back to towards the end of this, but Perhaps we can put a pin in that for now and talk a little bit about your study of the poetic revolutions and the idea of literary prestige we were starting to mention earlier. 
Could you tell me a little bit about those poetic revolutions themselves that you were studying in this work on the long durée of literary prestige? Yeah. So, I mean, um, the big one that sort of, the one that people had identified as a revolution that they assumed would overturn um, previous history is the advent of modernism in the early um, 20th century. I mean, one, um, the famous way of putting this is the Virginia Woolf's line that on or about December 1910, human nature changed. Um, but there are lots of other uh, famous shorthand views that in the, the beginning of the 20th century, there's a radical change um, often associated with World War I, um, fragmentation of values, poetic structure, you know, we lose rhyme and meter very often. Images are juxtaposed against each other just in a kind of collage way. So um, the, the, the narrative is that, that that's a, a massive um, overturning of previous values. But if you, if you look, if you actually model literary prestige and, and look at the, our ability to project that model forward and how it does or doesn't lose predictive power, you don't really see um, a radical break there. Instead, it looks more like, say, the concreteness of modernist imagist poetry that just juxtaposes images looks like the continuation of a long trend in the direction of concreteness that that was going on really throughout the 19th century. And I'm not the first person to see that either. There were people at Stanford, um, Ryan Huser and Lung Lecac, had shown like, you know, fiction is getting more concrete for 100 years, more. So these are the kinds of patterns we started to see when we when we did back out, both in fiction and in poetry. This this finding and the fact that it gives evidence against what some were claiming to be a poetic revolution, I think perhaps interestingly traces back to the distant versus close reading distinction that we talked about earlier. And I wonder if you could maybe just give some notes to this thought that, okay, on maybe a close reading experience of poetry at particular times, there was at least enough of this immediate feeling of poetry being rather different that people were saying there's been a poetic revolution. But then when you scope out, the picture is so different. So, you know, one, um, one way to put this is that there's, an, there's more experiments we need to run now that we have um, methods that are not, um, even, you know, frankly, even using something like BERT would be a place to start here. Now that we have methods that are not so dependent on um, word frequency, um, maybe, for, for instance, we were able to come up with a, a model of literary prestige that was like 80% accurate. Um, and with that, and the accuracy of that model didn't change that much as we, as we came forward into modernism. Um, and we didn't find, we tried like using rhyme and meter as features and it didn't really matter Word, words were the most predictive features, but maybe with something like Bert that can get a little bit more, um, you know, contextual understanding of words, maybe you would be able to come up with an even more, um, accurate model of prestige. And maybe when we do that, we would see the the modernist break that people had expected, in which case it might validate as you know the necessity of something like what we we can't really call it close reading if we're doing it with Bert, but a kind of more in-depth reading than you could do with a bag of words model. 
um, I don't think anyone has really done that experiment yet, or um, to the extent that we've done it, we haven't really found sudden literary revolutions yet. That there, um, but it's poss still possible that we would if we if we used a sophisticated enough representation. So you just have to, you know, the, the a negative finding is never absolute. You can always make your tools more sophisticated and hope that you will find that phenomenon that you're hoping to expecting to find. That that does absolutely raise the question of sophistication and how that looks different between models of increasing complexity and capability versus just the human experience of of reading and what that looks like. I mean, the the hope would be that as we get more sophisticated um, NLP, which is start with something like Bird or you know maybe a large language model, that um, that we're getting closer to the human experience and that we'll be able to register. Um, I mean, at least we'll be able to provide a more, if, if we end up validating the null hypothesis that there aren't revolutions, we'll be able to do it more convincingly if we have more sophisticated NLP. I think right now there are still, you know, that's still a question one would have to pose about like um, the long durée of literary prestige. It has to be, it has to be tested again with these new tools. Sure. In this work, another thing you kind of examined was verbal differences between prominent and obscure authors. And you were looking at literary prestige with respect to how likely a work was to get reviewed in a set of pretty prestigious journals. Could you speak to a few more of those details? Yeah. So, I mean, I've, right, I stressed one, one part of it is concreteness. So both fiction and poetry that, um, you know, use concrete references to the natural world or the human body that tended to uh, have more prestige in the whole period we were studying. But there are other things that have prestige. So melancholy, for instance, just negativity was prestigious, especially in poetry. Um, you know, and I don't know, I don't know what that tells you about poetry, but, um, and maybe specifically, I, I bet that continues to be true now, you know. I wouldn't be surprised. Um, yeah. And also, generally speaking, sort of individual perception was more prestigious than kind of social generalizations, you can find like patriotic poetry or religious poetry, which says like, you know, oh, for the, you know, the home and the hearth and the, 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 the truth and the, the red, white, and blue. And those kinds of um, references to truth or, or patriotism or duty uh, that had lower literary prestige. Now, obviously there's an audience for that, and there are people who are producing it, but they're not the people who edited the sort of elite literary magazines for whatever that's worth. So you can you you do get a sense of like the the social structure of the literary world from a model like this. Do any of those findings, I guess, for you, at all color your perception of what people seem to look for when they want to read poetry? Yeah. I'm yeah, and I think this would, it could vary across time, right? We found some stability through the 19th and early 20th century. But I think if you went back, if you went back far enough, like into the 17th century, you would find religious poetry that was prestigious and that had um, abstract social generalizations that, you know, Alexander Pope does that, right? And he was highly regarded. But by the time you get to the 19th century, the idea of what literary writing is, is beginning to crystallize. Like literary writing as distinguished 
from other kinds of discourses like philosophy or politics or the specifically literary, the purely literary is an idea that's beginning to crystallize in the 19th century. And a large part of what that means for that period is individual and concrete as, as distinguished to these other um, history, politics, philosophy, things that can, can do the abstract, but what it's, it's a change in what we meant by literary that you see reflected in this model. I think that's really interesting. And I wonder how much of it mimics you hear things here and there about cultural shifts to a world that is remarkably more individualist from one that prioritizes groups and culture, et cetera. I think that's something you hear everywhere. Yes. The, the big sort of history of ideas way of thinking about this is the rise of what we might call liberalism in, in politics and, John, you know, J.S. Mill and um, sort of individual foregrounding of the individual it goes back to the 18th century for that matter. Yeah, these things are probably connected. Um, absolutely. But the other thing that it does that I find useful about this, this understanding of literary history, which isn't, you know, isn't coming purely from our quantitative models, but it's certainly underlined by them. Um, it helps me understand why there's so much resistance to a quantitative approach to literature, because literature is supposed to be individual and concrete. So when you back up, when you do what we're doing now, when you do this distant reading, that's that's sort of it feels like it's at odds with this idea of literature that crystallized in the 19th century um, as all about, you know, sense experience of the individual, the the immediacy of that. So. Um, in a way, by doing distant reading, you can discover why distant reading is is taboo. The sense experience immediacy articulation is a really interesting one. And I think I remember you gesturing at this in the study, but you explored English language poetry specifically in this study. And I'm sort of curious if you're aware of any similar quantitative studies of fiction, perhaps in other languages, and if that kind of yielded any interesting insights. We would need to re repeat this in other languages. So I'm sure, for instance, the story I just told is really about the 19th century is largely a European story. Um, and I know um, there have been some experiments on German, Spanish, and French texts. More, I'm more aware of the work that's been done on genre, which we haven't really talked about yet, but I'm, I'm aware of experiments on our ability to detect genre in those languages. I'm not sure if, um, I think there's been at least one work that's replicated the trend toward concreteness in French literature. And I would be very surprised, to be honest, if it didn't replicate just from what we already know about the history of like French poetry, Baudelaire, the negativity of, you know, that's, that's going to be there. But, um, but then there needs to be more. I mean, honestly, there's just a small number of people doing this and, and we just don't have all the replication we should have yet. And then the question of, um, like, say, in Asian literature, Japanese and Chinese literature, um, I know of some work, but I don't think, um, I don't feel confident that it's the same story about the idea of the literary. Um, it's going to be a more, it's going to be a slightly different story. I feel like it's interesting to imagine just how you would study those distinctions, because in in one respect, you can think of, okay, what if we 
isolate the world of Japanese poetry from this period to this period. But in important ways, that is going to be intermingled with the history of English language poetry over that time as people intersected, their paths crossed. So the one, the, the, the piece I can point to is um, by Hoyt Long and um, Richard Jean So called Turbulent Flow, where they, they do look at the um, translation of a particular aspect of literary style called free and direct discourse, um, how it, how it diffused across national boundaries. I think Japanese literature is one of the chief examples as well as English, um, maybe Chinese. They've looked at some examples with Chinese literature and yeah, we can, this is the kind of thing we should be able to trace in, in more detail and more persuasively than we've done with, with these methods. Yeah, the idea of large-scale methods for this does seem like it would be promising because you can certainly do all the hard historical work of tracing which schools of thought interacted with which other schools of thought. Like I know members of the Kyoto School studied with people like Heidegger, for instance. And so that's kind of an important merging of these people were influenced by these people. But it's a lot of work to go by hand and, and trace all of those lines of thought. And you may get some things wrong. So, for instance, like if I recall right, um, rightly in the article, Turbulent Flow, it's like Turbulent Flow, colon, colon a model of, of um, world literature or something like that. One of the things they discover is actually detective fiction is plays a bigger role in the, the absorption and assimilation of things like free and direct discourse than you would think if you had a story that was just focused on sort of people who have literary prestige. So, um, you sometimes you you may need the scale that the quantitative methods permit to really get the right picture. That makes sense to me. Let's pivot to your work on the life cycles of genres. And I want to spend some time on the basic question and definitions here. So you point out that centuries of debate have not produced consensus on the topic of the concept of genre that it looks different at different points in the life of a text. Could you uh, elaborate a bit on that and how you think about genre pretty broadly? Right. So there, there's, um, there's been a lot of debate about this concept because we started out with a view of genre as sort of like, almost like species of animals. There are these natural kinds that... Um, People imagined like there's the epic, there's the lyric, there's drama. And these are kind of like in the nature of things like oxygen is oxygen and nitrogen is nitrogen. But increasingly, as we actually look at the, the history of genre in detail, we see that it doesn't work like that. That in fact, um, different readers will call the same book different things at different times. And um, new categories can can be created like science fiction or detective fiction. and um, sometimes, you know, they, the name will shift, like is scientific romance in the, in the late 19th century, Jules Verne and so on. The same thing as science fiction, a term that really isn't coined until the, um, I think 1930s. Um, so you have, you know, is, is the stuff that happened before that term, before anyone knew it was science fiction, was it science fiction or is it something else? So, um, what do readers perceive a text as? What does the writer intend? You can't sit down and try to write science fiction if the concept doesn't exist. Um, and, you know, the, the notion of a natural kind of genre is, is something distinct. 
So there are many different ways you could approach this, this concept. And I think they're valid. What we, what I've tried to do in, in modeling genre is mostly use the labels assigned by readers. Um, at the same time, I try to predict those labels using the evidence of the text itself, because I want to know, um, basically is how stable are the criteria that people are implicitly using to sort texts. I'm not assuming that the genre is something that's in the text. I'm not assuming that it's, um, you know, a natural kind like oxygen or nitrogen, but I, because people will call the same book many different things. And because sometimes we have these words that these terms that don't exist until like after, after science fiction has been going for 60 years um, or what we would now call science fiction, because different people call it different things. I want to know um, were the criteria that people were using to call up Jules Verne scientific romance, actually basically the same criteria that would be used then in the 1940s or not. And if the model, again, that if the model that can predict one of those categories can also predict the other, then we have a sense that there's, there's some continuity. Um, even though the term changes. This meta question of how to think about genres feels really interesting to me. And the way that you're articulating it kind of reminds me of that classic inflationary, deflationary distinction of perhaps natural kinds as things that are sort of just there versus that they're merely descriptive of what is kind of happening in the empirical world. And I, I sometimes wonder about whether the mere fact of we are using computational methods to study these things, whether that already brings an implicit viewpoint on kind of falling one way or another on that. I mean, I think that's, um, that's a, a good question. Um, when people are suspicious of this work, I think part from when they're suspicious of it from the humanities, I think it may be because they suspect that that um, using textual evidence is going to somehow assume that there's there's something in the text itself that makes it this genre. And therefore, it, it sort of presumes something like a natural kind. But um, I I would argue that's not true because we can we can actually find the the reverse. So, for instance, like with a term like the Gothic, that's a term that's been used for a long time, really, the late, since the late 18th century. But when you gather all the texts that people have called Gothic from the late 18th century to now, and you try to model them with the same model, it's it basically doesn't work, or at least the accuracy is low enough. It's like 60 percent, 70 percent accuracy that um, when you try to group these things together, that um, the attempt to find a kind of thing that is in the text it fails. And you have to acknowledge that like the sort of um, brooding castle, monastery, Gothic of the late 19th, of the late 18th century is really pretty different from the Southern Gothic or from, from modern horror, Stephen King, or even from like Dracula. It's not the same thing. We may have used the same word, but um, at least it's not possible um, without, you know, a model that hasn't, that doesn't already know about that critical history of reception, doesn't, doesn't automatically see them as the same thing. On the other hand, it, it's the reverse with something like science fiction. We can, 
we can take things that were not called science fiction because they were written before the term existed, but a model that's trained on, you know, mid 20th century science fiction says, yeah, I recognize Jules Verne. I recognize H.G. Wells. That's um, even, even in fact, to some extent, Mary Shelley, Frankenstein sort of um, fits in certain ways. There's, for instance, there's um, reference to large numbers, to inhuman actors. So the pronoun it's is really common in science fiction and all the way back to, to Frankenstein. So I don't know if, if this proves that we have solved the sort of theoretical question of what genre is, but at least with, with computational methods, you can get really different answers to the question of whether these categories are stable. A different dimension you bring up on this question of genre that I think seems really important later on in the work is that you're careful to say you don't mean to imply that genre is a linguistic phenomenon, but rather a broadly social phenomenon for which words happen to be convenient predictive clues. Could I ask you just to linger on that thought a little bit? It's basically related to the the problem of interpretability with these models that um, you you cannot assume that the features, well, there's all kinds of problems like multicollinearity. You can't even really assume that, you know, what direction the sign on any given feature is, is, is going to be very stable. But you definitely can't assume that the features are causal. Um, you know, like I, I've said, there are references to non-human actors in science fiction, and we see a lot of the pronoun it's, but that's you know, probably no one who's ever sat down to write a book of science fiction has thought like, oh, I'm going to use it's a lot. You know, it's it's definitely not a causal. It's a symptom of something. It's a symptom of of some kind of human behavior, um, some some social pattern that probably is not about the word. Um, so these the features we get with something like this, the models we get are. um so far from being explanatory models that I, I think you wouldn't want to use them to claim that genre is, that we, genre is contained in this model. No, it, it's predictive. Um, it's not explanatory. That's definitely a really key important point. And I'm kind of curious in the long run how there are lots of questions and sort of core machine learning communities about causal models and and where all of that is going. And I'm curious, as those directions begin to be explored, what lines of research that will kind of open up for questions like these? I could be wrong about what I'm about to say, because I, I definitely have an interested perspective on this, so which could be totally wrong. But my bias is to think that the study of culture is one of the last places where causal models will be useful. I think like, you know, in economics or politics or maybe even sociology, we may be able to get at like um, questions about the, the economic behavior of individuals that we could construct a simple causal model. But it's, um, for instance, like one of the things that uh, we found in a recent um, collaborative article um, uh, about um, cultural change was that uh, more than half of cultural change seems to be associated when, when, with when people were born and the environment of their youth, what they were acculturated into. 
So in other words, we were looking at writers there. Does it matter that the book was written in the 1930s or does it matter that the author was born in the 1890s? And to the extent we can separate those things, it, it matters a bit more when the author was shaped. And that, that means that the causality we're dealing with is going to be really indirect. Like all those influences on a kid in the 1890s, what they read, what, um, what technologies were or weren't available, trying to make so and and the length of time we're talking about right and the the number of feedback loops that are involved um it's going to be a mess compared to like you might be able to model why are people buying a particular product you might be able to come up with a causal model conceivably but cultural behavior is going to be so hard to explain causally not impossible but um i think it'll be one of the last places that's a pretty convincing perspective to me, and I think perhaps points to earlier you were sort of talking about how people initially were very skeptical about statistical learning approaches at all for the humanities, because this just all this thing kind of looks irreducible, these ideas about words we have. And right now we are saying maybe the cultural influences that a given author have look irreducible, and I'm, I'm definitely kind of on board with that. But it, it does kind of open up a box of wondering, maybe maybe it'll look a little bit less irreducible at some point in the future. Yes, yes, sure. Um, absolutely. If there's anything we've learned, it's that you should never say never in this field. And, and indeed, it could be faster than we think, because maybe, um, you know, maybe we will be able to identify some high level patterns that that are not. Like a lot of what I say about these models are um, predictive, not explanatory. Well, that's based on the fact that that they're the features I'm counting are are individual words, and um, yeah, those are not going to be explanatory. But maybe if we back up and use more sophisticated um, representations and can get you at higher level features, maybe we could construct something more explanatory. A lot of maybes here. Yeah, um, maybe. Yeah. Another paper that of yours that I thought was really interesting that I kind of wanted to pair this one with was in 2020 called Machine Learning and Human Perspective. And I want to start with this quotation. It says, Miriam Posner has rightly characterized the fluidity of digital ontologies as the radical, unrealized potential of digital humanities, which is backing up a bit in perspective, but tell me how you read that. Yes. Um, so what I'm saying here is, um, so I, I've spent some time in this interview saying, like what I had to learn was it wasn't enough to measure stuff. I needed to model it and I needed to model it in relation to human perception, whether that's of genre, of literary prestige or what have you. Miriam Posner has, is stressing, um, what we, what digital representations potentially give us is something, an ability to think about categories in a way that is not fixed. We can, we can be more fluid in our representations of categories because we have, um, more complicated data structures. It doesn't have to be just like, yeah, sort things into chapters or something. And what I think we, what I argue in this article is that um, we can take the 
sort of social grounding of our categories, like modeling them in relation to human perception, one step further and make that perspectival and fluid in the way that that um, Posner is arguing for, we can say, okay, let's model science fiction as it was understood in 1950 or as it was understood in the 1970s and come up with categories that are fluid and perspectival. And so the, the, another way of thinking about that, that insight is it's a flip, it's flipping around what people say is the Achilles heel of machine learning, which is that it tends to absorb biases in your training data. So you're trying to model who will be a good credit risk, but you never get that pure. You get what people at this bank thought was a good credit risk. And that may have all kinds of racial or uh, gender biases built into the training data. You, it's very hard to keep from absorbing those biases which is a problem. But if you're a historian, it's exactly what you want because you you want to acknowledge that the concepts you're tracing are not absolute, you know, not universal and eternal, but change from time to time. So so machine learning models are perfect for acknowledging the kind of mutable and perspectival part of history. I love that articulation of this as you said this kind of inversion of a classic vice and in the specific interest we have here uh, for objects of study, that suddenly becomes a virtue. Right, right. Um, that, that for me, that was a lot of the fun that I had in the last decade was sort of recognizing this is what machine learning can be really good at. And it's actually something that humanists really want to do and, and have traditionally insisted on. Um, and, and it's also why machine learning gets all this, you know, critique but but in our field, it's it's a strength. I think that's a kind of an important thing to rest on for a second, because I think that there's a lot of discussion over the ways in which ML systems think, quote unquote, think or behave in a deeply non-human way, and that there exist a lot of fundamental limitations which people are working to solve. But I think that there's this exercise of imagination where when we are wrestling with some of these vices like bias and how that turns into a virtue as we've already talked about, what are some ways, what are some things we can study where those things that initially seem problematic can actually be really helpful? Right. Another way of thinking about that, that that's sort of akin, it's, it's loosely analogous, is um. The, the critique of sort of generative, large generative language models, which was, you know, they're not really thinking. They're just, they're just kind of, um, they're just doing something with language. They're predicting what the next word is statistically. It's, it's this pattern. It's a sort of collective pattern, but it's not really what we think of as like individual thinking. And um, I grant the, the validity of that. Like there are definitely kinds of things that we do as individuals that a language model doesn't do in terms of like ability to plan and, um, you know, keep secrets. And, but there, there's also a way in which, again, I would say like from the perspective of the humanities or maybe even the social sciences, we should acknowledge that the supposed limitation here is actually really cool. It's getting at um, something that we as humanists are really interested in, which is language itself, as which we've always argued, or at least in the late 20th century, literary theorists were really into arguing that um, 
books have the shape they do, not because an author intended this or that or made this plan, but because there are cultural and linguistic structures that that get expressed in um, a work of fiction or a fairy tale or what have you. And language models, again, are good at grasping those sort of cultural linguistic patterns that it's been our job in the humanities to try to understand and and to and not to attribute to individual cleverness we that was so again like if you're a structuralist literary theorist you should you should love language models i can see that before we return to some of these more issues in depth i do want to briefly chat a little bit about two other works in your repertoire that kind of speak to the idea of textual distances and their use in understanding different types of significance. So one of them is the historical significance of textual distances. And I think that the question that your other article poses, can we map culture, is also quite related to this. So I'd love for you to introduce those two works. Yeah. um, So I think in some ways, the the can we map culture article is is the broader frame that we can use to introduce it. Because, you know, all of us, um, at least anyone who does quantitative work these days, is is in the business of creating two-dimensional representations of spaces that we know are more complex and that we know are high-dimensional. And okay, that's a particular kind of simplification. And we, we do that with cultural artifacts as well as everything else, like, you know, gene sequences or what have you. That's a certain kind of... of um, fiction to reduce it to two dimensions but it could be it could be even more profoundly a fiction than we're admitting to ourselves because if we we're still kind of assuming that that okay this is a, a flattening of a high dimensional space but we still think that things are related to each other by a kind of stable distance that behaves in, in euclidean ways like say the distance from a to b is the same as the distance from b to a um, that's an, an even more fundamental assumption than the number of dimensions in your representation. But it's not necessarily true, actually, in all possible manifolds that the distance from B to A is the distance, same as the other way around. Like in a cultural space, um, if say we're thinking about genres, maybe people who write one kind of detective fiction, um, say, rec- recognize like cozy um, country house detective fiction they recognize hard-boiled detective fiction as part of that. But the people who write hard-boiled might say, nah, we're doing our own thing. The co- the cozy detective story is something else and is distinct from us. So c- cultural distance is perspectival. It depends where you're located, potentially, what the distance is. So um, so that's the question I ask in Can We Map Culture? And um, there are ways, one of the things I point out is that you can use supervised models. Supervised models don't have to assume that um, the distance the distance is symmetric in that way, that A to B and B to A are the same. You can do a supervised model for different categories and model the distance between things, say, as the ability of one model to make predictions about the other category, in which case it can be asymmetric. And Basically, the take-home point is, in fact, we find that that does work better to predict human um, perceptions about cultural distance, say, between categories. So in some ways, like, cultural distance is non-Euclidean. It doesn't work the way physical distance does. But on the other hand, um, we, don't, we don't find that these, di- these 
sort of the non-Euclidean aspect is so big or so important to make it, we're not arguing against like two-dimensional representations or maps. Um, can we map culture? We end up saying, yes, we can, but we should know it's a simplification, not just in dimension reduction, but because, you know, really what we're talking about is not Euclidean. One of the things you cite in here on the way to this conclusion is a note from Chang and Dedeo, um, where initially, you know, there's this question, do cultural relationships behave like physical distance? And that sort of some of these alternative geometries extend to a distinction between the math of embodied experience and epistemic experience. And I think they articulate the KL divergence in particular as a distance measure that's useful for humanists. Right, right. And that, that's a good, it's a good example of a, a measure that's not symmetric and that could be useful for humanists. And they make a good case explaining why it would be um, a great example. And simpler than training a supervised model for everything, for sure. Can you elaborate just a little bit on some of the virtues there and, and kind of how you see it? So um, an argument that's been made very powerfully for using KL divergence is that it the, the analogy to surprise, to surprisal, could um, make it useful for thinking about historical change. And um, Simon Dedeo has used it for that reason when he's studying historical change and when he wants to think about um, like um, sudden breaks in, in a debate, say, he, he thinks scale divergence is more appropriate because it's closer to measuring surprise in an asymmetric way. Um, and um, if we, if we wanted to get really detailed about this, it's, it's sort of, he also thinks it's related to the question of epistemic enclosure like one distribution could be kind of enclosed in another and Kale divergence can tell you that in a way that just a distance measurement is not going to, um, at least not Euclidean. And I think this is all true, but I, I also want to underline the sort of positive or I guess the conclusion that we can chill a little bit about this is, is where, where we, where Richard So and I end up in, in can we map culture? We don't actually find that when you're measuring historical change, we don't actually find that it makes a difference whether you use Kale divergence or say like cosine distance. Um, in fact, you come up with the same results. We don't find a lot of examples in, in when we study historical change where epistemic enclosure makes Kale divergence importantly different. So right now, our conclusion there is like Kent Chang and Simon Dedeo have a really interesting, valid argument, but we're not sure that it. Um, we're not sure that everyone should have to use that measure because we haven't found that it it concretely makes a difference yet. Yeah, and I guess something I kind of see noted multiple times in this work and on textual distances is what you were kind of mentioning earlier that really the main conclusion is the recognition that you can use these methods, but inevitably they are going to be simplifications and that doesn't replace the need for kind of understanding the the more vivid picture that sort of having context gives us yes that's right that's right um 
yeah, all these all these quantitative models are are simplifications. So, like, when when is the simplification? When when do you lose something critical? Is is the question you have to ask? I think this is a good place to shift towards some broader takeaways from all of these works we discussed. And I'd love to do this with some of the writing from your blog. You have a really prolific blog and I, I love your writing there. You had this 2013 post, we don't already understand the broad outlines of literary history in which uh, you had a number of pretty interesting things to say, some of which kind of connect to our earlier discussion of literary categories, but I'd love for you to kind of explicate that title there. Yeah. Um, yeah, this is more, I, I think in that, in this post, I'm speaking more toward humanists than I am to like the machine learning or AI community, but um it was a really basic, I mean, the, the title is We Don't Already Understand the Broad Outlines. And you wouldn't necessarily have to say that to, like, I think psychologists do not think they understand human psychology. Everyone knows we don't understand how the brain works. And I'm, I'm sure that, you know, things are moving so fast in machine learning, we would hardly have to say that. But in the humanities, you know, we've been at this for a while. We've been at this for a few centuries and often we're studying stuff that's a couple centuries old. So you do kind of get the, without anyone necessarily coming out and saying it, you, you do get the tacit impression that we have at least a picture of the, the, the shape of what we're talking about. We know what the categories are, like romanticism, modernism, uh, the Victorian period, so forth. And what I try to try to say in that, and this was an early like 2013 piece is actually, it's very likely that we don't have the, the big picture that these categories that we're operating with may, they may not even be the mo the relevant categories. And the, the place where I feel I've come closest to demonstrating that this is true is that our, the, the categories we tend to operate with in the humanities are period categories like romanticism or modernism, um, names of schools or, or they're usually treated as names of, of cultural periods. And I think as we, as we get into quantitative study, it is becoming less and less clear that those are the, the first order concepts we should be working with when we generalize. Now you could argue that there's a bit of a bias toward um, continuity in quantitative methods themselves. And, and that could be true, but um, it's still interesting that we have found so little evidence for, for rapid sudden period breaks. So I'm, but my point is not really sort of narrowly limited to that. I, I want to just sort of convey to humanists, there is a lot we could learn. There's, there's um, the, the territory we have yet to explore is bigger than the territory we understand. And I hope that's still the big, the big picture that, that people have. Yeah, I think that we were talking earlier just about the kind of meta question of categories and category formation and shift. And that, remains interesting and I think just unresolved in, in lots of important ways. Even if it's unresolved, that at least, you know, tells you there's there's more for us to argue about than we we may have thought 20 years ago. Exactly. Jumping forward in time a little bit, in 2021 you wrote this very interesting science fiction hasn't prepared us to imagine machine learning around the time we were seeing GPT-3 and Clip and Dolly. Could you jump back into your mind at that point in time a little bit? Yeah. Um, I mean, so here I've been engaging with arguments that I think um, people in 
um, machine learning will be pretty familiar with because um, when we started to get large language models and, and things connected to them like clip that you know, translate into the image domain, um, the initial response, there was an initial pretty strongly skeptical response, things like the stochastic parrots paper, um, just justifiably famous, but not restricted to that paper. There lots of people were saying, you know, this is, um, this doesn't really look like what we thought AI was supposed to be. It's not, um, it's not autonomous. It's not, um, not clear that there's an interiority there and it's just it's it's tied very strongly to language and to predicting the next word and what i've tried to do in a couple blog posts and this is one of them is is just um get people to 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 think about this in a slightly different way and and think like um you know imitating what primates do is not necessarily the only thing that artificial intelligence could mean like we are we're great primates do a certain we, we're good at like standing on boxes using a stick to hit bananas making plans and three-dimensional space we're really good at but um there are other ways to approach this and language has a logic of its own that like the latent space of language or of um, text image models is its own kind of um way of thinking about what intelligence could could mean and I tried to get people just basically to think of that as something exciting. I think I think now it sort of almost goes without saying. People are working with large language models so much to, to compare that to like the Library of Babel and the Borges story is not very novel. But um, I just tried to get people thinking in that direction. Yeah, I really like some of the articulations that you have here. And I think that the idea of just reimagining these systems as opposed to being scared that they're going to wholesale replace us feels like a much more productive direction. Seeing them as analogous for, for one thing, because the argument I'm making in this post and in a couple others is that they're more analogous to models of culture than they are to models of what, you know, our individual planning intelligent subjectivity that, that is like, how am I going to get those bananas and has desires and, a, a language model is a little closer to a model of something collective like culture. Um, we might be we might be blurring that distinction before too long, but but I hope that the analogy to culture will make people feel a little bit less displaced. Yeah, I think this speaks to a thought that it's been going around my mind a little bit recently, and this speaks to exactly what I feel you're addressing with this idea of a model as representing something more collective, something more cultural, in that there was, I guess, a, a recent Ezra Klein article, which I think expresses sentiment as well. But there's sort of a, a book he was referencing that it seems like he agrees with that sort of called out the way in which now that we have large language models that can broadly perform things that people in white collar jobs could perform, or if you want to use an ill-defined phrase, something like a cognitive task, whatever that is supposed to mean. We now find ourselves wondering, how do we differentiate ourselves from these systems? What It's that basic, what is it to be human question that we're constantly confronted with? And he seemed to frame this as an inversion of the way we used to differentiate ourselves from animals by means of higher cognition. And it seemed like he almost thought of this as, as a cope. And I I really feel that it's a lot more complicated 
than that framing suggests. Yeah. Yeah. No. No, I agree. For one thing, there's more than one kind of higher cognition. And um, I liked the, uh, a piece that, that has resonated with me is Christopher Manning wrote a piece for Daedalus not too long ago where he, he talks about language as being um, something that is distinctively human, um, maybe even more than an intelligence as such. You know, primates are pretty intelligent. Other primates are pretty intelligent, but they don't have language which permits collective coordination. And a lot of what we've done is about collective coordination. Um, that's, you know, that's what, what, what chimpanzees are less good at. Um, so it's, it's not just higher functions, lower functions. It's, it's more complicated. And I don't know, I don't think anyone knows quite what, what happens when you have a, a model that's able to replicate some of what we do in this collective space of like language. And, and yet there are still things that we do that are, um, that are going to be different from or, um, different from what the model can do. I don't know. It's, it's, it's too big of a question. It is a hairy question. Yeah. And definitely not one I think I'm going to find a satisfying answer to anytime soon. Another blog post that you were kind of mentioning where you make a very similar argument to this um, a little bit later in 2021, mapping the latent spaces of culture, I think also kind of approaches this from an interesting way. And you have a few different things to say here that I kind of want to elaborate on a little bit. So this was for a roundtable on the implications of quote-unquote stochastic parrots for the humanities. And you agree with the authors of that paper that these models are dangerous, but you're not convinced that we've been alerted to the most important dangers yet. And I'm curious what leads you to that conclusion and perhaps if you have any inklings of what those kind of unalerted dangers might might look like. Yeah. Um, so I, to start with, I was pretty un, unpersuaded by some of the arguments about sort of... Um, Basically, that the argument was that people would mistakenly understand these models as really human and intelligent, and that was what was scary about them. And like that, um, that seems like a mistake that would be pretty easy to clear up. You know what I mean? It's like, okay, you know, if that's the problem, we should be able to get over that. But um, if you if you don't focus on the question, don't focus on these models as kind of like fooling people into thinking that they're human-like, but instead say like, okay, they're models of culture. Um, what will that then mean? Or what will that then do? Then I think you get at what to me is potentially more, um, more scary, which is that it's very likely that our, that our culture will change. If these, if we're capable of say, creating a model where fans can interact with, let's say, video, anime. You're already beginning to see this, in fact, right now in just the last year, and and remix things, um, deep fake voices and, and um, recast characters. That's gonna be that's gonna be fun and powerful and in a certain way it's great. It's participatory. It it means like big um potentially big companies like Disney don't own the narrative anymore. And that could be fun in the same way fan fiction is fun. But it could also mean that um uh you get these 
Well, to, to take the simplest example, it could mean you have all these kinds of prejudices or gender biases or um, sexism expressed in the way that culture gets created because people are going to be attracted to that. We can already see that in the way text image models get used in these fairly sexist ways, objectification of women. There's a lot of that going on. That's, you know, sadly, that sort of seems to be what that technology could gravitate toward um, very easily. Um, but on a, you know, on a bigger scale, like, okay, that's okay. We kind of knew that was a problem with human beings already, or at least with male ones. Um, but you could also create these kind of hermetically sealed cultures where you, you have people, like it's already starting that people are wanting to tune large language models to be, to represent their political point of view. Like, oh, no woke AI. I want my own model that expresses my own political point of view. And that's really scary because um, it, you get a self-reinforcing loop there. And if people are using that as their sort of search engine to represent the word world, you could, I mean, you could really end up with a hermetic cultural system that is almost impossible to break into or for one system to communicate to another. They've got their own model. They've got their own search engine. They've got, you know, their own language, basically. That seems to me scarier. Yeah. I do see that as worrying. And it's also concerning to me that sometimes I will see and I don't know if this is like an SF groupthink kind of thing, but I'll often see people actually proselytize that very vision of, oh, I could have language models, generative models, just create my own virtual world for me. And it looks exactly like what I want. And I look at that and I just think I, I don't know if that's a, a future that I really want. Yeah. It's a little disturbing. It's, you know, you think of Google Glasses and you also think of those scenes from her where Joaquin Phoenix is like walking around kind of in a daze, listening to Scarlett Johansson burble in his ears. And I can see why that's attractive. But um, yeah, as a vision of, of society at large, um, yeah, that's there's something a little bit creepy about it that I don't know. I guess we're going to we're going to find out just how creepy. Yeah. Well, I guess there's a couple of related thoughts here that I want to explore. And I think one of them is you already started speaking about this, but the idea of what we kind of witnessed in the clip plus VQ, VQ gone moment when Dolly was not yet open and people were kind of stitching together things, you articulated pictures produced as postcards from an unmapped latent space. And I, I loved that wording. Um it seems like we're still trying to understand how these models understand things right now. And it's really interesting to me. There was a very recent work that kind of explored and did some ablation studies, I think, to understand do models like CLIP that were trained contrastively have compositional understanding, which is a pretty natural question. And they concluded no, which is really interesting. You can view that as a limitation and something to be fixed, but maybe you get something more interesting if they don't have that compositional understanding. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think this is where it gets really fun. Um, yeah. I saw some echoes of that paper you were, you're referencing, but it, it goes, it goes back a ways. I think actually, I think um, some of the Google image models already began to make the point that there were kinds of compositionality that you can get out of like T5 that you couldn't get just out of clip because of the way it's trained. But but the flip side that you're highlighting is there are 
there are also cool things you can do when you break the the system. And yeah, the the clip plus VQGAN moment was was really um, exciting for me because it felt uh, it felt weird, but also very exploratory. And um, it's a little it feels a little different now. I think some people are already some artists are beginning to be a little nostalgic for that. But I'm also sure we will recreate in different ways that um, the the possibility that these tools open up different ways of thinking or seeing, maybe not intentionally, maybe sometimes because they break and it's it's not what we're used to. But um, that is for me what is most exciting at the moment. I'm I'm waiting for the moment when language models do something like that. I haven't quite seen it yet. Like they're. I don't know if it's because the reinforcement learning is making them so kind of averaged out or, or what it is, but um, generally speaking, you get a kind of um, common denominator voice in those language models, which is definitely not what you get in, in image gener- generation. And I don't know when that will change. Anyway, that's a big question, but I'm, I'm waiting for, I have a feeling like there's another shoe to drop somewhere when, when language models will start to open up really new ways of thinking, which I don't quite think they have yet. I can see that. I think this would be a good place to shift to the the necessary GPT-4 section of this interview. And we can we can use your, your recent blog post on using GPT-4 to measure the passage of time in fiction as a way to dive into that. Could you tell me a little bit about what you were exploring here? And you had some pretty interesting takeaways that we kind of hinted at earlier on the interpretability of language models. So in part, I was just asking whether we can reproduce work that I had done with human readers to, to estimate the passage of time in fiction um, with GPT-4. Because we we found a trend that was interesting that fiction is kind of slowing down. The, the amount of time that passes in a single page getting shorter and shorter, partly related to this trend we talked about earlier toward concrete description, really immediate close-up description. So you, you know, you don't get generalization, you get like this moment. Um, but could we replicate that with GPT-4? Because bag of words models don't do that well. Their, their estimation of time is, it's too loose. Um, and yeah, in fact, um, Chat GPT was pretty good, and GPT-4 was pretty close to human level. Now, I have to say, David Bamman has replicated this with BERT and shown that, in fact, BERT also is pretty close to human level. But BERT gets more, to do that, we have to give BERT more training examples, whereas GPT-4 is doing this, like, few shot. So partly I was just um, trying to see, you know, will this method be useful for us and, and ultimately maybe help us do things that we questions we really can't pose, even with Bert, about like the structure of fiction, larger questions that require more context. And I think the answer is pr- mostly yes. But the other thing that was fun to me about working with um, a conversation model and prompt engineering it was, the way I put it is the model gets to talk back to you when, when you're designing the research question, it, it will tell you like, cause you have to do chain of thought prompting to get it to come up with anything at all. You say like, what's the evidence about time and what conclusions do you draw from that? And how confident are you? And it would frequently say, I am totally not confident about this because this passage does not have enough evidence. And um, that's a nice, I think it's a nice aspect. Um, it's let's put it this way. It's just a different, different feeling of doing research when your tools are 
kind of arguing with you about the definition of, of the construct that you're trying to measure. Um, that could get interesting. Um, yeah, but mainly, mainly what interests me there is that we can get at questions about like character motivation and plot that we just have not been able to get at with, with um, bag of words methods at all. The takeaway that you were just talking about that because of this documentation of reasoning, deep learning might feel more interpretable than statistical NLP strikes me as really interesting because I think it speaks to a worry a lot of people have right now about the interpretability of these methods. Yeah, I mean, that's that is the the sort of polemical way of putting it is is I and I did I did summarize it this way that in some ways deep learning is more interpretable because it can. Uh, the model can generalize it it can it thinks out loud it describes to you like how did how did i reach this conclusion like you told me to think step by step right well i mean that means i'm going to show my work and um statistical machine learning doesn't do that now you can open statistical machine learning up and look at the feature weights and but on the other hand looking at the feature weights doesn't always tell you very much really um, you know, in, in fact, we, we're kind of, we kind of ignore problems, real statistical problems about multicollinearity when we do that. And in, in fact, we have to. So, um, I think that there, I think a very good case can be made that, that deep learning could be more, more interpretable in, in the way that human reading is more interpretable than statistical machine learning, because we can describe now, but you have to also acknowledge like it's not like the language model can introspect it cannot it does not you know like gpt4 doesn't even necessarily know but it's gpt4 but um but if you ask it to think step by step it could be interpretable do you ever think about whether trusting in that the kind of reports that this thing gives of its chain of thinking could be misleading or or post hoc I, and not only do I think about that, but I had a big argument with someone about that on Mastodon the other day. And, and it was an interesting, it was an illuminating argument. Um, I mean, I was trying to say, okay, I'm not asking it to introspect. I know it can't introspect. And I know that, like, if, if I just ask it cold, like, why did you conclude that? It will just make something up. <laughs> you know, it will, it, because that's what it does. But um, the argument I was making, and I, I'm, this is fresh enough and I'm not completely sure whether it's true, but I was trying to argue that if, if you've asked it to do chain of thought and think step by step and trace its own reasoning, that at least you have the trace in the words there. It's an, you know, it's an autoregressive process and in some way it's sort of definitionally true that the way it got to this word at the end of that passage is through the words that were ahead of it. Now the problem would be, that doesn't necessarily mean that we as readers are going to be able to understand that what it was that triggered the conclusion. It it could be there can be jumps in thought that we might not be able to to follow still conceivably. But I don't know. Um, Another unanswered question. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> At this point, there's a. Uh... A prompt from your previous post that I want to inject here to speak about some broader questions that people are thinking about with regards to GPT-4. You said that if neural language models are to play a constructive role in research, universities 
we'll also need alternatives to material dependence on tech giants. To begin inching into this domain, what what does a, a better world look like for you in terms of these models playing a constructive role? Well, to start with, I'd like to, I'd like there to be some good open um, source models. We're ge- we're getting there a bit, but it's tr- it's tricky. Everyone was very excited about Alpaca, and now I hear Facebook is kind of trying to claw that back. Um, I don't know. So it could take us a while to get to where we have an, an open source equivalent to GPT four. Then beyond the models, right? There's the implementation dimension of it. Um, I can painfully construct on university hardware and implementation of any of these models, probably, maybe not GPT-4, I don't know how it's implemented, but you know, I, I could get someone at the National Center for Supercomputing Applications, which is on our campus, you know, to help me shard the model over multiple GPUs if need be, but um, that is gonna really limit the number of people who can, who can do this. And also it, there are certain kinds of experiments you wouldn't be able to run, like I need, I would really rather have an API because then I can get students to work with it and I could even set up an interface. So I think in addition to the open source models, universities should be working on something like an API that's um, analogous to the, the open AI one, because that will greatly expand the, um, the number of people who actually use this stuff. Uh, it's not the way we've approached high performance computing in the past, but um, seems to be the logical way to do this. A lot of people are with you on the argument that these models should be open sourced and that doing so could really advance the development of many different lines of research in important ways. But how do you how do you view the opposing argument and the way that OpenAI is kind of managed this right now? So I'm. Um, you know, this is, this really basically gets into how you think about the role of capitalism in driving technological and cultural change. It really is what that, that question is. And people have different opinions about that. Like I'm not, that's like a, a question that people validly have different opinions about. And I'm not sure that I have any authority about that, but I personally, um, don't begrudge people doing for-profit research, like I can understand why you've got to um, pay the bills and, and um, uh, that, that allows you to do certain things that you might not otherwise be able to do, or at least more quickly. So I'm not judging right off the bat. I, I'm not so much, although I'm sure there are people who would, right? But, and I'm not saying they're wrong either, but I guess I don't really have have a, judgmental position on what open AI is doing. I just think we as, as academics and universities and, and the government should be making sure that they are not the only people who have this, because that's, that is a definitely a catastrophe. Um, and even not just, you know, open AI or, or Microsoft, like even if like if it's them and Google and Facebook who own these models, that's still not a world I want to be living in. There have to be, there has to be some kind of public access, or otherwise it's the the potential for, in like ingrained intellectual inequality is just terrifying. It really is a question of of power and who gets to influence these things. Because even if 
a small number of people have control over these models, inevitably, if only a small number are capable of developing them with so many people using them, that, that really is just a massive power imbalance. Right. Even if it's open, even if it's open, it's, um, that's, what's really scary is, is the question of, um, basically, are there enough good jobs kind of, and, and, or are we, or are we headed toward a world where there's a small number of people who refine the model and then most people are just applying it or, or customers of it. And, uh, that is scary. And I don't, I don't know the answer. I think we should be talking to economists and, and political scientists about that. I, I definitely agree. Let's talk about some things where we might have better ideas about answers on. Yeah. And so <laughs> yeah. I think a, a good place to begin closing on all of this is another post of yours, Reclaiming Ground for the Humanities. And I think this is a really interesting set of arguments to close with, where you point out that Really, historians, humanists think that the intuitions they've developed about cultural history and how meaning is conveyed in text are pretty vital to studying the humanities, but that even alone, scientists can make very real contributions to the understanding of text. Could you just elaborate on that a bit and how your own experience has informed that view? Yeah, I'm trying to say several things that seem to be in tension with each other in this piece. And, and one is like humanists have real insights that are specialized insights that are valid and that do make a difference. Like we know that cultural meaning is context specific. It, it does not, there is not a universal concept of literature that's true in all times and places. On the other hand, like as you just said, I wanted to acknowledge there's really good work on history and culture being done by people in the sciences and social sciences. So I, I really don't think it is at all useful for humanists to, to sort of circle the wagons, to use the metaphor, and say, like, we need to protect against these other disciplines. That will get us nowhere. It will, that, is the, that is a path to the irrelevance, I'm afraid. Um, so I am trying to lay out, and this is an ongoing problem of a vision of sort of constructive interaction but that also i think if we're being realistic it it that does not mean the same division of labor we're used to where we you know farm out certain questions to the sciences and they're not allowed to touch our questions no it really these boundaries are going to be much more fluid than we're used to i i do think there are like as nlp gets gets good i think increasingly there are going to be ways that questions about human behavior and rhetoric really can contribute because what we're dealing with is not just questions about noun verb agreement anymore. It's, it's questions about like, um, who's the audience in reinforcement learning? How should, how should this interaction be modeled if it's a conversation? Those are, those are questions where social sciences and humanities have a role to play, but, um, it is going to be more fluid than we're used to. And um, I, I want people to be excited, but, but flexible, ready for things to change. This seems like a really valuable perspective. And it's interesting to contend with, especially when it seems that every few years, there's something like an article or a set of articles that are proclaiming the death of the humanities, the death of the English major. I'm pretty sure the New Yorker just published a piece with that title. And so it's it's kind of interesting to contend with 
well, what what does the future of humanities and humanistic study look like? Yeah. And it's tricky for me because, you know, I started out in an English department, but I have moved. I'm mostly now in, an, in a school of information sciences, although I still have part of my affiliation with the English department and teach courses there. So I, I don't know if I still count as a humanist and am allowed to, uh, whether I'm still allowed to, to say what the future of the humanities is. But from from where I sit, it, it looks to me like um, the not a lot of hard boundaries. Um, a lot of exciting things, a lot of motion, but not a lot of disciplinary boundaries are going to be pretty fluid. In the same way that people are being pretty imaginative about how LLMs can make us more productive and technical jobs, I think there's definitely a lot of opportunity for digital humanities projects, things like this, to make humanists even just working as humanists more productive. One example that comes to mind for me is there's this really great project that maps out all of the propositions in Spinoza's ethics, and you can kind of see how everything hangs together. And I feel like it really does help in understanding the structure of the argument if you're trying to study it. Yeah. And I do think, as I hinted earlier, that one of the one of the consequences of LLMs could be that it's no longer true that these methods only help at the macro scale. I think it's conceivable that um, dialogue with a model that was, you know, actually looking at the text of a particular philosopher, say, or a particular novel, might even be able to help us come to some insights about a single author or book. Now, how exactly it's going to happen, I'm not sure. That's, But it, it doesn't seem impossible to me that we'll get there. I think a place for us to kind of walk to as a closing thought is something that I think we started to approach towards the beginning, beginning of this conversation and kind of rested on later. And that is the kind of categories of the, the types of knowing, of interacting with the world, of dealing with knowledge that humans kind of inhabit, that machines inhabit, how those interact. And I really liked this phrase that you used in this piece, that human self-understanding is a collaborative project and not a race between departments. And I'd love for you to just linger on, on that thought a little bit. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it's um, partly, I guess, I'm just sort of hitting that note of co the collective and the collaborative dimension of what we're all engaged in, which seems always seems to me to be something that's important to, to foreground um, is, you know, same way language is collective. Um, but so I, I want people to be, to, to feel that sense of cooperation and pulling together, which is weirdly hard. You know, you think of universities as kind of collective, public, not private sector, not competitive, but in fact, disciplines are incredibly competitive and um, the, the, turf wars between disciplines are get really fierce. Um, and, you know, as I've, as I've been saying, I, I just don't think that's going to work with, with things um, are sort of intellectual tools changing as fast as they are. Like the, the turf wars could, could be sort of stable because things weren't moving that fast, but with things moving this fast, we're, we're going to need to just to feel like we're all in this together. It's a big confusing, rapidly evolving project with risks, but 
um, not a lot of fixed boundaries and uh, human self-understanding is also a phrase that I like because it's like, you know, it's not, it's not, it's also not going to be us versus the machines. That doesn't make any sense, really. At least not until, until they get some kind of autonomy that they don't currently have. It's, it's just about what human beings do. This might be another thing where the answer is rather unstable and kind of about evolution, but we've talked quite a few times about how there are types of insight that many people will intuitively think are kind of irreducible to the quantitative signatures we can extract from text banks. And I'm often sympathetic to that intuition. One idea that kind of comes to mind is like one really kind of interesting thing for me related to that legibility is how I think in his theory of the polyphonic novel, like Mikhail Bakhtin really articulated something that I felt very viscerally when reading Dostoevsky, and it really kind of helped me articulate that experience to myself. But I, I often wonder how reducible or irreducible that is to statistical methods. And I'm I'm just curious, at least personally for you, whether you have intuitions on just things you experience when reading or think about that you would be really surprised, perhaps maybe a little bit disappointed if those turned out to be, um, you know, things that models could take over the task of understanding and dealing with. This, this may really depend on temperament, you know, um, but I don't, because people, they just experience they get pleasure in a different place. Some people get pleasure from the thought of the, the mystery that isn't yet explained. And, and that itself is part of what makes it an exciting and moving experience. In which case I understand why reducing and modeling would, would, would detract from that. But I have not usually found that to be true for me that, that instead it's more like um, understanding something in, in detail and zooming out. It's, it's kind of like understand, you know, you hear the individual parts of a symphony, but you still putting them together, it's still moving and it doesn't detract at all. So I think, you know, and that's been sort of the experience that I've had so far with, um, uh, it, it's more like um, quantitative research into, into culture feels like a detective story to me where there's a mystery and their clues and things come together with a satisfying click that that it doesn't detract from from the experience. So that's I'm I would personally predict that we will slowly get a better and better understanding of many phenomena, maybe even as you were, you know, suggesting earlier, like the causality of cultural change. And that that doesn't have to detract from um being moved or impressed by what we've put together as, you know, primates who gradually figured out how to do this. It's, it's still a pretty impressive thing we've done. I think that's a really, really positive note. And I, I like the, the equanimity that you come at this with. <laughs> and I feel that perhaps a, a lot of people could, could really use that feeling. Good. Well, then that's a good note to end on. <laughs> yes, I, I think so. Well, Ted, this has been a really fantastic conversation. I 
admire your work a lot, and I'm really happy that I got the chance to speak with you. So thank you for taking the time. Likewise, I don't I don't think I've ever met anyone who's who understands all these different pieces as well. That's really impressive. You you did your research for this. Like you understand my my work better than I do at this point. I've forgotten a lot of it. <laughs> and that is a wrap, my friends. As I mentioned at the start of the episode, you can subscribe to The Gradient on Substack to receive not just this podcast, but also our articles and newsletters directly to your email. You can also visit us at thegradient.pub, where you'll find all of that, as well as more information about The Gradient and how you could even contribute if you're interested. And finally, if you enjoyed this episode, we would really appreciate your feedback. If you'd like to leave a comment or review, we'd love to know how we can make this series more interesting and informative to you. And with all that, I'll leave you until the next episode.